All right. Welcome to Rockford Reading Daily, or welcome back to Rockford Reading Daily. I'm not sure what episode number this is, but we are in the 50s. We are beginning a new book. This is Women, Race, and Class by Angela Y. Davis. Let's hop into it. This is the first book we're reading on the Rockford Reading Daily podcast that was written by uh, a woman. So I think that that's an important thing to point out. Chapter one, the legacy of slavery, standards for a new womanhood. When the influential scholar Ulrich B. Phillips declared in 1918 that slavery in the Old South had impressed upon African savages and their native-born descendants the glorious stamp of civilization, he set the stage for a long and passionate debate. As the decades passed and the debate raged on, one historian after another confidently professed to have deciphered the real meaning of the, quote, peculiar institution, end quote. But amidst all this scholarly activity, the special situation of the female slave remained unpenetrated. The ceaseless arguments about her, quote, sexual pro- promiscuity, end quote, or her, quote, matriarchal, end quote, proclatives obscured much more than they illuminated the condition of black women during slavery. Herbert Apotheker remains one of the few historians who attempted to establish a more realistic basis for the understanding of the female slave. During the 1970s, the slavery debate reemerged with renewed vigor. Eugene Genovese published Roe, Jordan, Roe, The World the Slaves Made. John Blassingame's The Slave Community appeared, as did Fogel and Ingerman's ill-conceived Time on the Cross, and Herbert Gutman's monumental Black Family and Slavery and Freedom. Responding to this rejuvenated debate, Stanley Elkins decided it was time to publish an expanded edition of his 1959 study, Slavery. Conspicuously absent from this flurry of publications is a book expressly devoted to slave women. Those of us who have anxiously awaited a serious study of the black woman during slavery remain so far disappointed it has been equally disappointing to discover that with the exception of the traditionally debatable questions of promiscuity versus marriage and forced versus voluntary sex with white men scant attention has been focused on women by the authors of these new books the most enlightening of all these recent studies is herbert gutman's investigation of the black family In furnishing documentary evidence that the family's vitality proves stronger than the dehumanizing rigors of slavery Gutman has dethroned the black matriarchy thesis popularized by Daniel Moynihan in 1965. Yet, since his observation about slave women are generally designed to confirm their wifely propensities, the implication is easily drawn that they differ from their white counterparts only to the extent that their domestic aspirations were thwarted by the exigencies of the slave system. According to Gutman, Although institutionalized slave norms accorded women a great degree of premarital sexual freedom, they eventually settled into permanent marriages and built families based as much on their husband's input as on their own. Gutman's co- cogent, cogent and well-documented arguments against the matriarchy thesis are extremely valuable. But how much more powerful this book might have been had he concretely explored the multidimensional role of black women within the family and within the slave community as a whole. If and when a historian sets the record straight on the experiences of enslaved black women, she or he 
will have performed an inestimable service. It is not for the sake of historical accuracy alone that such a study should be conducted, for lessons can be gleaned from the slave era which will shed light upon black women's and all women's current battle for emancipation. As a layperson, I can only propose some tentative ideas which might possibly guide a re-examination of the history of black women during slavery. And then that brings us to a sort of a turning point in the theme of the this first chapter. So I want to take this time to reflect on these first two pages that we've read. And I think the thing that stands out to me the most is, as I was reading this, I was trying to think about whether it be movies, documentaries, books I've read, speeches I've heard, how many things that have been talked about, how many things that I've listened to or have taken in in the last uh, coming up to about year and a half to two years and really through my whole life that have been about slavery and have been uh, told or be, been narrated from the perspective of women during slavery or a woman during slavery. Uh, and it is besides Harriet Tubman, which I, you know, which is a very well-known story to even to the point where it's sort of been mainstream. Uh, it's sort of been uh, whitewashed and more made, made into a mainstream story. You have to really dive into uh, do a further examination to get some of the true aspects of Harriet Tubman as opposed to what has been some of the whitewashed aspects of Harriet Tubman. But besides that, there, is, there isn't a lot of or really even any singular experience that I can recall. And so I think that that is one of the things that has been a constant for me. I've been trying to be cognizant of as I think back to certain time periods, as I try to read and do research about certain uh things that have happened in history, I've tried to do go out of my way to try to find a narrative from uh, a woman or try to find a woman's narrative of something instead of uh, uh, regularly reading about history or reading about the ideology or reading about the actions of a man. Uh, because I do believe that that is another, uh, that w within trying to advocate for marginalized people you have to also learn about the marginalized groups within that marginalized people so that way you don't uh, begin to build those same habits that forced a group into marginalization in the first place and so I think just as important as it is for us to learn about police terrorism mass incarceration and racial injustice in general it's also just as important to find out how those things affect marginalized groups within the society uh, and so yeah, let's get back into this. Proportionately, more black women have always worked outside their homes than have their white sisters. The enormous space that work occupies in black women's lives today follows its patterns established during the very earliest days of slavery. As slaves, compulsory labor overshadowed every other aspect of women's existence. It would seem, therefore, that the starting point for any exploration of black women's lives under slavery would be an appraisal of their role as workers. The slave system defined black people as chattel. Since women, no less than men, were viewed as profitable labor units, they might as well have been genderless as far as the slaveholders were concerned. In the words of one scholar, quote, the slave woman was first a full-time worker for her owner and only incidentally a wife, mother, and homemaker, end quote. Judged by the evolving 19th century ideology of femininity, which emphasized women's role as nurturing mothers and gentle companions and housekeepers for their husbands, black women were practically anomalies. 
Though black women enjoy few of the dubious benefits of the ideology of womanhood, it is sometimes assumed that the typical female slave was a house servant, either a cook, maid, or mammy for the children in the, quote, big house, end quote. Uncle Tom and Sambo have always found faithful companions in Aunt Jemima and the black mammy, stereotypes which presumed to capture the essence of the black woman's role during slavery. As is so often the case, the reality is actually the diametrical opposite of the myth. Like the majority of slave men, slave women, for the most part, were field workers. While a significant proportion of border state slaves may have been house servants, slaves in the Deep South, the real home of the slaveocracy, were predominantly agricultural workers. Around the middle of the 19th century, seven out of eight slaves, men and women alike, were field workers. Just as the boys were sent to the fields when they came of age, so too were the girls assigned to work the soil, pick the cotton, cut the cane, harvest the tobacco. An old woman interviewed during the 1930s described her childhood initiation to field work on an Alabama cotton plantation. Quote, we had old ragged huts made out of poles and some of the cracks chinked up with mud and moss and some of them wasn't. We didn't have no good beds, just scaffolds nailed up to the wall out of poles and the old ragged bedding thrown on them. That sure was hard sleeping, but even that felt good to our weary bones after them long, hard days of work in the field. I tended to the children when I was a little gal and tried to clean the house just like old miss tells me to. Then as soon as I was 10 years old, old master, he say, get this here nigga to that cotton patch. End quote. Jenny Proctor's experience was typical. For most girls and women, as for most boys and men, it was hard labor in the fields from sunup to sundown. Where work was concerned, strength and productivity under the threat of the whip outweighed considerations of sex. In this sense, the oppression of women was identical to the oppression of men. But women suffered in different ways as well, for they were victims of sexual abuse and other barbarous mistreatment that could only be afflicted on women. Expediency governed the slaveholders' posture toward female slaves. When it was profitable to exploit them as if they were men, they were regarded, in effect, as genderless. But when they could be exploited, punished, and repressed in ways suited only for women, they were locked into their exclusively female roles. When the abolition of the international slave trade began to threaten the expansion of the young cotton-growing industry, the slaveholding class was forced to rely on natural reproduction as the surest method of replenishing and increasing the domestic slave population. Thus, a premium was placed on the slave woman's reproductive capacity. During the decades preceding the Civil War, black women came to be increasingly appraised for their fertility, or for the lack of it. She, who was potentially the mother of 10, 12, 14 or more became a coveted treasure indeed. This did not mean, however, that as mothers, black women enjoyed a more respected status than they enjoyed as workers. Ideological exaltation of motherhood, as popular as it was during the 19th century, did not extend to slaves. In fact, in the eyes of the slaveholders, slave women were not mothers at all. They were simply instruments guaranteeing the growth of the slave labor force. They were, quote, breeders, end quote, animals whose monetary value could be precisely calculated in terms of their ability to multiply their numbers. Since slave women were classified as, quote, breeders, end quote, as opposed to, quote, mothers, end quote, 
Their infant children could be sold away from them like calves from cows. One year after the importation of Africans was halted, a South Carolina court ruled that female slaves had no legal claims whatever on their children. Consequently, according to this ruling, children could be sold away from their mothers at any age because, quote, the young of slaves stand on the same footing as other animals, end quote. As females, slave women were inherently vulnerable to all forms of sexual coercion. If the most violent punishments of men consisted in floggings and mutilations, women were flogged and mutilated as well as raped. Rape, in fact, was an uncamouflaged expression of the slaveholders' economic mastery and the overseer's control over black women as workers. The special abuses inflicted on women thus facilitated the ruthless economic exploitation of their labor. The demands of this exploitation caused slave owners to cast aside their orthodox sexist attitudes except for purposes of repression. If black women were hardly, quote, women, end quote, in the accepted sense, the slave system also discouraged male supremacy in black men because husbands and wives, fathers and daughters were equally subjected to the slave master's absolute authority. The prominence of male supremacy among the slaves might have prompted a dangerous rupture in the chain of command. Moreover, since black women as workers cannot be treated as the, quote, weaker sex, end quote, or the, quote, housewife, end quote, black men cannot be candidates for the figure of, quote, family head, end quote, and certainly not for, quote, family provider, end quote. After all, men, women, and children alike were all, quote, providers, end quote, for the slaveholding class. Okay, I want to take a moment to stop there. And it's not a really a turning point. I think we're still going to dive deeper into the dynamics of, of womanhood and uh, juxtapose that with some of the dynamics of manhood during slavery and childhood during slavery. But I want to stop here and I want to th talk about some of the things that I was thinking about reading this. One of the things that stood out to me as I was reading this is some of the conversations I've had with people who are caseworkers or people who are uh, involved in the DCFS system in some way and, and, and child, you know, I don't know what the proper terminology for all, for it, for it is. I'm still uh, not highly educated on it. I'm slightly informed on it. Uh, but one of the things that's standing out to me as I'm hearing this is the generations of black women dating back to uh, slavery times who have had the state, who have had to deal with the state or, uh, some type of authoritative institution deciding whether or not they are uh, deciding whether or not they have possession of their children. And if they do have possession of their children, deciding uh, the the dynamics or the, the situation or the conditions in which they have uh, possession of their children. I think that when I hear it, anytime I, I, I read things about history, specifically uh, history in America and slave history, one of the things that I'm always reminded of is this concept of of generational trauma, of things, of something happening to your grandmother. Your grandmother almost drowns, and because she almost drowns, she develops a, a, a certain fear of water, and then that 
imprints onto her uh, site, you know, her, into her brain, into her, you know, psychology. It, you know, alters her her brain, and the, you know, I'm not using the right terminology for this, but it alters the way she thinks in a certain level. And then when she has a child, or even if she's pregnant, maybe she's pregnant and still having these fears with your mother, and then your mother's born. Uh, there's uh, data and studies that say that your mother is then born with that with the fear of water that's there. They say that, and then you know, you are, you're born and you have that same type of fear of water. So this type of uh, Sorry, I got the mic was moving away a little bit. But this type of impression, having these type of impressions, psychological impressions upon people. And what if you trace these things back to slavery, how many generations had these type of psychological imprints done onto them and what that residual effects look like looks like, you know, now today. And and then even if you just removed some of the psychological aspects on the people who have had these things happen to them, when you think about how since if you go to I think that was South Carolina that they were mentioning, if you go to South Carolina and you look at the laws that they established for uh, African women and, and enslaved women and what the possession of their children would be like and whether or not they could possess children. And then you follow the laws all the way to 2021, what you will see is an alteration in these laws and an adjustment in these laws, but you'll still see laws and policies and procedures that are in place that disproportionately affect the black women and women of color in uh the, the possession that they have over their children, even as far as the the opportunities that they have had for employment or opportunities that they may have for their living conditions, all of these different things that put them in a position to uh, not be able to meet whatever standards the state uh, or some institution may set for them being able to possess their children. So, and, and again, this is sort of a I'm trying to like have a, a scratch the surface of a of a deeper thought, but I just you know again when I read some of these things, I try to relay them to uh, events that's happening currently or uh, things that directly have connection to Rockford, Illinois, or Winnebago County, or just the current status of racial and social issues in 2021. So I hope that I hope that made sense. Mm. Wait, hold on one second. Find my page. Okay. In the cotton, tobacco, corn, and sugarcane fields, women worked alongside their men. In the words of an ex-slave, the bell rings at 4 o'clock in the morning, and they have half an hour to get ready. Men and women start together, and the women must work as steadily as the men and perform the same task as the men. Most slave owners established systems of calculating their slaves' yield in terms of the average rates of productivity they demanded. Children, thus, were frequently rated as quarter hands. Women, it was generally assumed, were full hands, unless they had been expressly assigned to be, quote, breeders, end quote, or sucklers, end quote, in which case they sometimes ranked as less than full hands. Slave owners naturally sought to ensure that their, quote, breeders, end quote, would bear children as often as biologically possible. But they would never went so far as to exempt pregnant women and mothers with infant children from work in the fields. While many mothers were forced to leave their infants lying on the ground in the area where they worked, some refused to leave them unattended and tried to work at the normal pace with their babies on their backs. An ex-slave described such excuse me. An ex an ex-slave described such a case on the plantation where he lived. Quote, One young woman did not, like the others, leave her child at the end of the row, but had contrived a sort of rude knapsack made of a pierced coarse linen cloth in which she fastened her child, which was very young, upon her back. 
and in this way carried it all day and performed her task at the hoe with the other people, end quote. On other plantations, the women left their infants in the care of small children or older slaves who were not able to perform hard labor in the fields. Unable to nurse their infants regularly, they endured the pain caused by their swollen breasts. In one of the most popular slave narratives of the period, Moses Grandy related the miserable predicament of slave mothers. On the estate I am speaking of, those women who had sucking children suffered much from their breasts becoming full of milk, the infants being left at home. They therefore could not keep up with the other hands. I have seen the overseer beat them with raw hide so that the blood and milk flew mingled from their breasts. Pregnant women were not only compelled to do the normal agricultural work, they could also accept the floggings workers normally received if they failed to fulfill their days' quota or if they, quote, impudently, end quote, protested their treatment. Quote, a woman who gives offense in the field and is large in a family way is compelled to lie down over a hole made to receive her corpulency and is flogged with a whip or beat with a paddle, which has holes in it. At every stroke comes a blister. One of my sisters was so severely punished in this way that labor was brought on and the child was born in the field. This very overseer, Mr. Brooks, killed in this manner a girl named Mary. Her father and mother were in the field at that time. End quote. On those plantations and farms where pregnant women were dealt with lenient were dealt with leniently. Let me read that sentence one more time. On those plantations and farms where pregnant women were dealt with more leniently, it was seldom on humanitarian grounds. It was simply that slaveholders appreciated the value of a slave child born alive in the same way that they appreciated the value of a newborn calf or colt. When timid attempts at industrialization were made in the pre-Civil War South, slave labor complemented and frequently competed with free labor. Slave-owning industrialists used men, women, and children alike, and when planters and farmers hired out their slaves, they found women and children in as great demand as men. Quote, slave women, slave women and the children compromised large proportions of the workforces in most slave employing textile, hemp and tobacco factories. Slave women and children sometimes worked at, quote, heavy, end quote, industries such as sugar refining and rice milling. Other heavy industries such as transportation and lumbering used slave women and children to a considerable extent, end quote. Women were not too, quote, feminine, end quote, to work in coal mines and iron foundries or to be lumberjacks and ditch diggers. When the Santee Canal was constructed in North Carolina, slave women were a full 50 percent of the labor force. Women also worked on the Louisiana levees and many of the Southern railroads still in use today were constructed in part by female slave labor. The use of slave women as substitutes for beasts of burden to pull trams in the southern mines is reminiscent of the horrendous utilization of white female labor in England, as described in Karl Marx's Capital. Quote, in England, women are still occasionally used instead of horses for hauling canal boats because the labor required to produce horses and machines is accurately known quantity, while that required to maintain the women of the surplus population is below all calculation. End quote. Like their British counterparts, the Southern industrialists made no secret of the reasons motivating them to employ women in their enterprises. Female slaves were a great deal more profitable than either free workers or male slaves. They, quote, cost less to capitalize and to maintain than their prime males, end quote. 
Required by the masters' demands to be as, quote, masculine, end quote, in the performance of their work as their men, black women must have been profoundly affected by their experiences during slavery. Some, no doubt, were broken and destroyed, yet the majority survived and, in the process, acquired qualities considered taboo by the 19th century ideology of womanhood. A traveler during that period observed a slave crew in Mississippi returning home from the fields and described the group as including, quote, 40 of the largest and strongest women I ever saw together. They were all in a simple uniform dress of a bluish check stuff. Their legs and feet were bare. They carried themselves loftily, each having a hoe over the shoulder and walking with the free, powerful swing like Chaucer's on the march, end quote. While it is hardly likely that these women were expressing pride in the work they performed under the ever-present threat of the whip, they must have been aware nonetheless of their enormous power, their ability to produce and create. For, as Marx put it, quote, Labor is the living, shaping fire. It represents the impermanence of things, their temporality. End quote. It is possible, of course, that this traveler's observations were tainted by racism of the paternalistic variety, but if not, then perhaps these women had learned to extract from the oppressive circumstances of their lives the strength they needed to resist the daily dehumanization of slavery. Their awareness of their endless capacity for hard work may have imparted to them a confidence in their ability to struggle for themselves, their families, and their people. When a tentative pre-Civil War forays into the... One second. Okay, here, let's take a second to let me take a second to reflect on some of the things that we read. Okay, I let I think that one of the other things that continues to stand out to me is the concept of the these slave women not being considered women when it was time for them or not being or being considered genderless when it was time for them to do a task that one may consider men uh, more physically capable of doing. So when it's time to come out into the fields and to pick, they're expected to pick just as much as any man is expected to pick, to have the same speed that any man is expected to have, and they also deal with the same punishment that any man would be uh, expected to deal with. However, when it's time for something that is specifically unique to a woman, uh, such as uh, uh sexual assault, which I don't want to say is specifically unique to women because um, many men uh, were sexually assaulted during this time. But it, I, I would imagine, and I'm sure that this is much, I don't know for, this for a fact, but I would imagine that, of course, this happened disproportionately to women. Uh, and also, so when that when it's time for that to happen, then they were, you know, seen as women again or seen they were no longer genderless when it was when it was a way that they could exploit them for their womanhood. And then the same thing when it was time for them to uh, be pregnant and to be with child, then again, their uh, their gender was taken into consideration. Uh, but once the child again was born, they were not seen as uh, a mother. They were seen as. Uh, a, a breeder, a conduit for the child, but not a mother for the child. And so, and I think that again, those type of psychological things still exist in this society that we're in and they exist in an, in an altered way, but they still exist. And I think the reason that it's important for us, uh, all we, we, I think it's important to have an understanding of all of history, but specifically uh, the country you are in, the region you are in, the state, the place that you are in, it's important to have historical 
uh, references from things of the past to know how many things have truly uh, changed and or and how many things that once existed no longer exist and how many things maybe have just been altered uh, and just exist in a different manner in a different way and I think that a lot of the ways that uh, slave women were exploited and where oppressed still exists now with uh, black women and the exploitation and some of the oppressions that they deal with. But if you can't, uh, if you don't have the historical context for the roots and, and the causes and how these things begun, uh, sometimes it's harder to see the effects and, and how these things are uh, presently. And so I think that that's something that, you know, is uh, still very, uh, these are all things that are still very prevalent uh, in the 21st century. And I think what we'll do is we'll end this episode right there. It's uh, going to be a very, uh, I'm looking for the word, heavy, heavy read, obviously, uh, from these first passages that we've read. But also, I think, a very important read. And I also think another uh, important piece for us to try to fit into the bigger picture of police terrorism, mass incarceration, and racial injustice. And so... Uh, please share this on whatever platform you're listening to it on. Uh, like us, on, like the May 30th Alliance on Facebook. Follow May 30th Alliance on Twitter. If you haven't listened to previous episodes of Rafa Reading Daily, please go back and listen to those. This is the first episode reading Women, Race, and Class by Angela Y. Davis. Previous, episode, previous episodes we have read Have Black Lives Ever Mattered by Mamiya Abu-Jamal. Uh, Race Matters by Cornell West. And then we just finished reading Citizens, Cops, and Empower. And I can't remember the name of that author. So, all right. Look out for uh, tomorrow's episode. Thank you.